everyone. Welcome back to Here in Apologetics. Super pumped you're joining us today to have Dr. Michael Brown. He's a scholar. He runs the Ask Dr. Brown YouTube channel. And most importantly, he's an annual contender in the Christian Apologetics March Madness Tournament. Um, but Dr. Brown, how are you today? It's so good to see you. I'm doing well in the midst of the craziness of, of the world around us. Doing well. Thanks. Yeah, it's a pretty crazy time. Um, but I look forward to talking to you today and talking about um, did Christians craft Jesus into just some sort of like uh, like copycat Messiah almost. So talking about like Old, Te Old Testament prophecy, a lot of times you hear a story of something like, well, the Old Testament was like a grab bag and you have the gospel writers trying to just like mix and match prophecies to fit Jesus. Um, so all kinds of things like that. But before we get into that today, Dr. Brown, could you just talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus, came to faith in 1971 as a heroin shooting LSD using hippie rock drummer, 16 years old. And I've been following the Lord now, so it's just just under uh, just under 50 years. So from 71 until until 2021, uh, our ministry emphasizes three R's: revival, revolution, redemption. So revival in the church, and then a gospel-based moral and cultural revolution in society, and redemption in Israel, seeing our Jewish people saved. So I do a daily radio show, The Line of Fire. I've been doing that five days a week live for 13 years. I've been preaching around the world for, for many, many years. Uh, out of the States, probably about 200 different trips around the world. Have led different ministry schools, and raised up, sent out missionaries around the world. And then I'm constantly writing. So I only write about five op-ed pieces a week on what's happening in the world around us. Written more than 40 books. So from Jewish apologetics to commentaries on biblical books to books on revival and, and reformation and things like that. Uh, and then here and there, do podcasts like this as we have the opportunity. Yeah, it's super cool. And it's amazing how much you got your hands into. Um, so I'm grateful for your time just talking about this and everything. So can you just talk a little bit? Um, you talked a little bit about like your Jewish background, but like uh, what's a little bit of like your story and how you got interested in like messianic prophecy and what we're talking about today? So when I came to faith, it wasn't based on someone showing me the messianic prophecies of the Bible. It was based on God convicting me of my sin and saving me. And because I didn't come from a religious Jewish background, I was bar mitzvahed at 13, but that was more of a social event than a spiritual event for me. Uh, the little Hebrew that I knew, I had, I had forgotten by the time I was, I was a believer. So and I just came in as uh, raw, as, as a lost sinner, and then... <clears throat> When, when my dad started talking to me, he was thrilled to see the change in my life, but began to, to challenge me about things I believed, you know, because we're Jews, and brought me to meet the local rabbi who began to challenge me. So right out of the gate, I mean, literally within days of being a believer, I was having my faith challenged in these different ways. And then one of my friends told me, oh, yeah, there's, there are amazing prophecies about Jesus in the Bible, because, you know, I, I didn't know about it. Uh, that was not how I came to faith. There are, there are many other Jews who come to faith, and that's a big part of it, so in showing them the Messianic prophecies. But for me, I was a believer. Then I began to discover these, and no sooner did I discover them that they got challenged, that the rabbi would tell me it's, it's taken totally out of context. Or, hey, you got the quote here. You think it means one thing. Go back and read it in the original. You see it means something totally different. Uh, so I, I became interested because I wanted to follow the truth. And these rabbis were raising strong objections. And my pastor was not an academic at all, quite the opposite. So he was a man of prayer and, and loved the Lord and reached out to the lost and had a lot of scripture in him. But in terms of sensitivity to Jewish objections, or, you know, that was kind of non-existent. So I, I had to begin to, to search. And when I went to talk to Jewish outreach organizations like Jews for Jesus and things like that, met with some of their people in New York. They, they were amazing. I mean, they were fearless and bold and sharing the gospel and had these great evangelistic tracks, but they weren't into apologetics. And then when I would go, I found out, oh, here's a conservative Christian scholar at, at some seminary and reached out to him. And he just had different perspectives on things and wasn't really focused on Jewish objections. And so I, I really just had to study scripture intensively on my own and say, God, and I do this to this day, I just want to follow you and your truth wherever it leads, mm -hmm. and, and I want to understand these things rightly, because the rabbis are raising strong objections here, but then I see there are strong answers here, and so it, it was kind of 
on the one hand, inevitable as a Jewish believer in Jesus that I focused on this with all the challenges that I had. But then it became very natural as, as I saw the strength and, and the, the approach of the New Testament writers, it began to make more and more sense to me. Hmm. That's super cool. So what then in the first place um, sort of compelled you then when you're looking at like these prophecies and the scriptures and stuff to kind of believe um, that Jesus was the Messiah? Right. So it was my life was changed by him. You know, let, mm-hmm. let's remember, let's go back to the New Testament that there was no widespread expectation that the Messiah would be rejected, die, and rise from the dead. There are some arguments that there were hints of some teachings like that or that there were views about a suffering Messiah, but there there was certainly no widespread Jewish expectation, let alone that the Messiah would be crucified so Mm. that he would die the the lowest, most despicable death known in, in the Roman world. So the disciples came to know that he was the Messiah because he did supernatural things, Hmm. because he performed signs, wonders, and miracles, because he had power over nature and power to raise the dead, power in the demonic realm. So they were convinced that he was the, the promised one, and then to their shock, he dies which point they think they were wrong, that, that he wasn't the Messiah after all, even though repeatedly he had told them that I'm going to die and rise. They didn't get it because it was so far out of their paradigm. Then when he rises from the dead, now all doubt is removed. Okay, this, this unfolded differently than we thought, but lo and behold, you are the Messiah, you have risen from the dead, and then he sends his spirit once he ascends to heaven, and now they're empowered to do the same thing. So, so case closed in that regard. But he had opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He had shown them through the word that Messiah had to suffer and die and rise. And f- after experiencing him and seeing his reality as Messiah, now they saw, oh, it's all laid out here in scripture. So for me, it was the same progression. It wasn't me starting with the Bible, like I'll start with a Jewish person today and showing them from the Bible that Jesus was the Messiah. It was encountering him as Messiah, now reading the Bible, reading the New Testament, believing that it's true, having that challenged, and now being able to respond to those challenges with honesty. Mm -hmm. So it's commonly like, agreed upon, like you mentioned that like the Jews in the first century AD, they weren't expecting a Messiah um, that was going to come suffer on a cross and die. They were expecting like a military leader or something like that. So then in your view, Dr. Brown, like why was it, why did it seem discreet? Um, Like why was this unexpected? Like if this was God's great plan, why did no one anticipate it um, leading up to the resurrection of Jesus? The most likely reason is that we would have tried to manufacture it a thousand times over or that we would have mistaken all kinds of other people suffering and dying and concocted all types of myths around it. That, uh, or conversely, that there would have been this argument, well, he really is the Messiah. Well, if he's the Messiah, then we can't let him die. Well, no, no, we ha- he has to die. And, you know, all of this unneeded speculation. You know, look, when it comes to the return of Jesus in the clouds of heaven, there's nothing we can do about that. I mean, we, we can live a certain way and participate with the Lord to speed his coming, but that's out of our hands. Mm-hmm. That's a heavenly event that we can't manufacture. When he comes and the whole world sees him in the clouds, there's nothing we can do about that. We, we, we can't make that happen. Whereas something like this to try to say, well, he was the one or, we, yeah, you know, we, this one died and, and now the reports that the grave is, you know, you could try to manufacture any number of things, and it seemed, uh, e- even in terms of, of Satan, it says in 1 Corinthians 2, that had the, the powers of this age realized who it was, they, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Mm. And that could well be talking about demonic powers there, that if they realized that they are not cooperating with God's plan, God's plan of redemption, they wouldn't have gone along with it. So God in his wisdom laid things out clearly enough that when you go back and look at it, it's written with unmistakable clarity, but you didn't see it coming the first time around. And whether the Messiah was going to be a military leader or a, a, a great teacher who brought peace to the earth, either way, the idea of a crucified Messiah was not 
anticipate it. There were different views. There was not one concrete view of who the Messiah would be at that time. There were even references to, to two messiahs, the priestly messiah and the Davidic messiah, which of course are both aspects of, of who Yeshua is. Um, but you know, we've all, we've all read novels, some spy thriller or, or you know, who done it kind of thing or a movie, and and you go through it, and the first time through it, you you keep thinking it's this one, it's this one, it's this one, and then you find out who it is afterwards. When you watch it or read it the second time, it's like ah, oh, it was there, it was all <laughs> yeah. there. We just didn't see. So this is how God and His wisdom laid things out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's actually just what I was thinking about. I was thinking about the book, and then there were none. Um, are you familiar with that by Agatha Christie? Um, uh, yes, yes, not not it, intimately, but yes. Yeah, it's something similar where it's like you're trying to figure it out, and you think you have it figured out, and then it ends, and it's just a completely different direction than you thought you were going. And it's like, oh wow, this is kind of interesting. So right, but it's yeah. never the same reading it the second time because you already know. <laughs> yeah. So then you see the hints become more obvious. In this case. God made it abundantly clear. I'll, I'll give you another example. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture, looking at a picture of, of an old man, kind of withered face with a beard. Mm -hmm. And someone says, do you see an old man or a beautiful woman? Mm -hmm. I see an old man. We'll keep looking at it. And then suddenly the thing shifts on you. You know, the black mm -hmm. and white becomes white and black and everything shifts and you see the face of a beautiful woman and you, now you can't see the man. Mm -hmm. And, and it, you're looking at the same thing, but it's just a perception thing. And both are actually there. So in, in this case, when we go back and look and read the description, now we know who the description fits. It's incredibly clear. It's, it's so powerfully clear that many Jews have come to faith just reading Isaiah 53 and realizing that has to be Jesus. Mm. It's super interesting to think about. Um, so one of the things we're going to be talking about today is like, did Christians craft Jesus into like this Messiah figure? Um, so a lot of skeptics will kind of look have a picture of the gospel where you have these gospel writers writing a few decades after the death of Jesus. And it's almost like the Old Testament is this grab bag where they're just like trying to attribute prophecies, um, their Messiah. And it's kind of like how they're crafting a figure um, that ends up with like the Jesus we read in the New Testament. Um, so in your view, like what's kind of wrong with this kind of picture of looking at um, the Messianic story? Right. So first, there is an incredible coherence and logic in the Messianic prophecies. And the, the deeper you dig, the more you see the coherence and the logic. So it's, it's anything but grab bag. There are consistent themes that work throughout. There are, there are different streams, the priestly stream and the royal stream, which when you understand them, become very, very clear. Uh, there are passages that are wonderfully explicit. Uh, and then when you, you understand the, the concept of fulfill, that a passage reaches its full meaning in the Messiah, that opens a, a lot of things up. It, it almost becomes kind of an embarrassment of riches when you realize how much is, is there. It reminds me of a time when I was teaching an extensive class on Messianic prophecy a graduate level at a school I led in Maryland years ago called Messiah Biblical Institute and Graduate School of Theology. And we had a man joining us. He was an Orthodox rabbi from Israel who had come to faith. And he was moved, he just moved with his family to America. And uh, they didn't speak English. And I, I was the best Hebrew speaker in our congregation, then, which was pretty bad because my modern Hebrew is, is not so great. And we didn't have, at that moment, other Israelis with us. So I was responsible for making sure we coordinated things. And sometimes we, we'd miss each other by an hour. He'd be waiting an hour. And what, oh, God, did you say Hamesh? I thought you, you said five, not Sheesh. Not so sorry about that. I missed that. But anyway, as an Orthodox rabbi, uh, there, his, his way of reading the, the scriptures, yes, they understand there is the narrative sense, the Peshat, the plain meaning, but they are seeing Torah everywhere. They are seeing certain spiritual references to the laws of God kind of everywhere. And, you know, for example, if they're reading Proverbs 5 and the seductive woman, you know, that's something to pull you away from Torah. And, and, and you know, just the imagery is this Torah, Torah, Torah. So I'm teaching the class. 
Mm-hmm. And he's listening, you know, picking up some stuff if he can, a little English and here and there, because I'm showing the Hebrew text constantly. So he's able to follow along at least, and maybe some points I can make in Hebrew he can follow. But every so often, he just raises his hand because he just keep reading his Hebrew Bible. And he'd point to a verse and says, uh, I, I think that's Jesus. I think that's talking about Jesus. And I'd read the verse and think, you got to be kidding me. But he found Jesus everywhere, <laughs> Just huh, yeah. wherever he looked, because he had a certain mindset as an Orthodox Jew in reading scripture of seeing Torah everywhere and these kinds of references. Mm-hmm. But when you dig in a little deeper and you understand the methodology, you understand some of the Jewish ways of interpreting scripture, you understand that, that rather than looking at this as utterly simplistic, there's, there's depth behind it. There's something mm-hmm. to it that the Messiah brings this scripture to its full meaning, that it never reached its full destiny. Wow. It's, it's anything but just atomistic, pulling a verse out here and there. Uh, rather, there, there's insight behind it and understanding behind it. You know, I'll, I'll just give one example. In, in Matthew, the second chapter, when it's talking about uh, Joseph with Miriam and Yeshua going into Egypt and then coming out of Egypt. So Matthew 2.15 quotes Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. So counter-missionary rabbis would immediately point out and say, that's a butchering of of the verse. Number one, it's not a prophecy. Hosea was not prophesying that the Messiah would, would come out of Egypt the Messiah God's son would come out of Egypt. Rather, it's history. Read the verses. And, and they said Matthew only quotes half of it because he's trying to trick the readers. Because the rest of it says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called, the more he rebelled. So it's talking about Israel, God's firstborn son, going into Egypt and God calling Israel out of Egypt. But then Israel continues to sin. So how in the world... Can that be applied to the Messiah? Obviously, Matthew quoted half of the verse to trick his readers. But to the contrary, Matthew's assumption, and especially in, in, in an oral society where people have things memorized, they, they don't have access to written text as much, he's assuming when he quotes part of the verse that his audience knows the rest. And his point is typological, that just as Israel, God's firstborn son, went into Egypt in its infancy and was called out of Egypt, so also the Messiah, God's firstborn son, goes into Egypt in his infancy and is called out of Egypt. So mm-hmm. it's, it's not manufacturing something. It's saying, as it happened to one, it happened to the other. Same with, with prophecies about David or statements about David, like Psalm 41, a psalm of, of sickness and healing. And, and he mentions being betrayed, you know, the, the one who, who ate bread with me, you know, dipped his, his, his bread with me, that, that, that he's betrayed me. Uh, and then David goes on talking about his sin. And so I've, I've had friends years ago, rabbis would sit them down, Jewish believers, and so they read the verse, you know, the, the, the one who ate bread with me has lifted his seal against me, has betrayed, betrayed me. They say, is that a prophecy about Jesus? They say, yes. And then the rabbi says, well, look, the next verse, it says, well, I've sinned. And so are you saying Jesus sinned? No, it's saying that, that David, the prototype of the Messiah, was betrayed by a close friend, an associate, as it happened to David, so it happens to the Messiah. It's parallel. Hmm. And, and so Jesus fulfills the destiny of Israel and, and, and the, the words to Israel and the promises to the Davidic kings, and he lives out a lot of the history. It gets recapitulated in him. So these are not just random things pulled out of nowhere. They are things with, with purpose and with plan, and that's why you often see different passages quoted frequently uh, scholars would refer to the testimonia, certain passages that are constantly quoted, like Psalm 110, the most frequently quoted of all, which would indicate the likelihood of Jesus teaching his disciples, as it says explicitly in Luke 24. And then with this understanding, now they went out and preached him. Hmm. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, so there's different passages that people will bring up to kind of um, point to say, hey, like, weren't these, here's where the gospel authors were kind of um, trying to 
point out and just kind of take things out of context to kind of make their own like little spiel out of it. And one of the most common ones is with Matthew and the virgin birth. So, and mm-hmm. the Septu- so the question of like, what is the Septuagint saying with like, is it just a young woman? And then Matthew specifies what's a virgin. Um, so can you just like kind of talk about that situation and why you think ultimately like it doesn't work with like trying to discredit the authors of the gospels? Yeah. Um, so Matthew one twenty three, quoting Isaiah seven fourteen has been considered uh, the most controversial passage in the Bible. Hmm. I have spent uh, many, many, many hours in that passage. Uh, That's reflected in volume three of my series on answering Jewish objections to Jesus, the Messianic Prophecy volume, where I get in depth into Isaiah 7.14. And I'm currently writing a commentary on Isaiah for a new series of Pentecostal scholars. Uh, So it'll be a big commentary on Isaiah. And I've, I've spent... Uh, a lot i was just over to my left <laughs> stacks and stacks of books behind me huh. you know library of books so many of them focused on on this subject um and, and i plan to write a whole lot more on it but uh, a lot of the debate is is kind of unnecessary to be honest uh, a lot of the debate that we 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 get into is is really not needed when things are rightly understood uh, yes, it's true that that the Septuagint takes the Hebrew words "hineha maharavi oleded ben v'karat shemo Emmanuel." Look, the the Alma is pregnant and and is about to give birth, uh, and will call uh, call his name Emmanuel. The Septuagint uh, changes Alma or translates Alma with Parthenos virgin. Uh, it is true that in Genesis 34, the Septuagint uses Parthenos for, for Dina after she's raped. But that's really the exception to the rule. And the Genesis translation is earlier than Isaiah and the Septuagint. So a good case can be made that when they translated it with, with uh, Parthenos, they meant virgin. But they make it future, the virgin will conceive. Some would even argue that it means a woman who is a virgin now will in the future conceive. And then the question is, well, what's the sign? And Jewish and Christian... Scholars have debated this. Jews have said, well, the, the only sign is that the, the woman names the son Emmanuel, and that's the sign that God is with us. And the Christian scholars have said, no, the sign has to be miraculous, hence a virgin birth. And it goes all around. But to me, what's essential to understand is that Matthew 7, excuse me, Isaiah 7 itself is, is filled with messianic import because it's a word to the house of David. Hmm. And the house of David has become faithless under, under King Ahaz. And God is going to judge that, that faithless house with a promise of someone better. And what's clear when you read Matthew 1 through 4 is that he also has in mind the ninth chapter and the 11th chapter. Remember in Matthew 4, he quotes about the people who lived in darkness have seen a great light. That's quoting from Isaiah 9. And Isaiah 9 is the passage, the prophecy about the Messianic king who's, who's called Peleuet Selgi Baraviat Sar Shalom, so wonderful counselor, mighty God, blessing for the Prince of Peace, as traditionally rendered. So Matthew has that in mind, as well as Isaiah 11, 1, that a netzer will grow up from, from, from Jesse, just, just a root, just a stump. Uh, and we see that he has that in mind in Matthew 2, 23, where he quotes the prophets, plural, that the Messiah will be called the Nazarene. Uh, uh, where did he get that from? Well, someone from Nazareth. Well, it's, it's a play on Netzer from Isaiah 11 and, and related passages. So Matthew clearly is looking at Isaiah 7 through 11 as, as messianic. He's seeing this as ultimately the same child uh, that's being spoken of, Emmanuel in the seventh chapter and then the chapter 9, the, the son born to us in chapter 11, the the, the root out of, uh, out of the stump of Jesse. So, so he's looking at these, this larger context. I mean, many scholars are, uh, agree with that as well. And he's quoting for the Septuagint because he's writing in Greek. If there was an original Hebrew Matthew, he would have likely quoted the Hebrew, but he's, he's writing in Greek. So he's quoting the Septuagint. And Miriam herself was a virgin. It was miraculous. But my understanding is that the prophecy is initially spoken to Ahaz, to this godless king, it's a word of rebuke because he refuses to ask for a sign because he's planning on hiring out the king of Assyria, which God says is the very one that's going to come and judge you. So God gives him a sign that this Alma uh, 
which could could mean virgin, but doesn't have to. Certainly was was a young woman. Mm-hmm. I, I'd say girl, just to to jar someone to think, what well, girl? She's gonna. And there was someone unlikely, unexpected to have a child. Not impossible. That it's a virgin birth, but but unexpected, surprising. She's gonna have a child, and there's no mention of the father, which is unusual in this. Uh, and she's gonna name him. Emmanuel, God with us. So it's a rebuke to the godless king. It's a word of encouragement to the people as to who he is, as to when this comes to pass. The text gives us no hint. Uh, Emmanuel's mentioned in the next chapter, but we have no hint about any of this. In the very next chapter, the beginning of the eighth chapter, it's, it says that uh, Isaiah is to go to his wife and have a son and name him Mahershalach Hashbaz. So it's about the, the, the hastening of, of the booty and the prey. And that sign is almost identical to an Emmanuel one in terms of within this time period, before the child's old enough to do this and this, that, that the kings you, you're afraid of, Syria and Israel, they'll be destroyed. Mm. So the identity of this Emmanuel is kind of hidden. The mother is identified, but not more specifically. Isaiah 8, it's his wife, the prophetess that he goes to. Uh, so it's very ambiguous in context. And then kind of bleeds into naturally the child born in the ninth chapter and the, the vision of the eleventh chapter. What's the point? In my view, there was a child born at that time in a surprising way, not necessarily miraculous, but a surprising way that would get attention. The word Alma is used in the plural in Song of Solomon six, referring to the uh, the young women that were in in the royal harem or the royal court. So these were, were likely virgins. Uh, and, and then the king could pick any of them, you know, to, to, to be a, a wife. So it could be, it could be that simple, but we know nothing more about it. So before this child reached a certain age, the, the Northern Kings that were attacking would be defeated. And then shortly after that, God would really humble Judah by the King of Assyria. But as to who this Emmanuel was or who the mother was, that's pointed out here with such significance. We don't know it's, but it is a promise to the house of David now Matthew, reading this hundreds of years later, realized, wait a, wait a second. There are many promises that God gave to the house of David that were never realized. Read Psalm 2, coronation psalm. That was originally spoken over David or, or Solomon and probably every Judean king that was raised up. This was spoken over them and asking me, I'll give you the nations of the earth and, and so on. And warning the nations of the earth, don't fight against God. Don't fight against his son, the king in Jerusalem. But it's never realized. Everything spoken of is never realized. So now this becomes a prophecy. That these unfulfilled words become a prophecy. So Matthew sees this word that was in context given to Ahaz and his generation and sees there's got to be much more to this. This is a word for the house of David. This ties into the one born on the throne of David in the ninth chapter. And, and Miriam, his mother, really is an Alma in the fullest sense of the word, a virgin. And this is a miraculous birth. And Yeshua is God with us in a unique way. I mean, how could he not quote it? How could he not say, now what Matthew spoke is fulfilled? It is it has reached its full meaning. So so up until then, you know, if, if you look at it kind of kind of like this, like here's the prophecy on the bottom. I get that right here. And, and, yeah. and this is the fulfillment. So in Isaiah's day, maybe it reached here. And now it sits there. It's like, who is this? What is it? There is no ancient consensus on who Emmanuel was or how the prophecy was fulfilled. And, and, and it's, it's, you're left with mystery and question. Matthew reads it and says, ah, now it reaches its fulfillment. So all of these loose end words to the house of David, loose end promises to David. I say loose end in that they... They never fully came to pass. They fully come to pass in Yeshua. Look at this from another angle. There were prophecies about the return of the Jewish people from Babylonian exile. Mm-hmm. Glorious prophecies. Prophecies about a new exodus, a, a new creation. Like Isaiah 40 through 48, these glorious prophecies are, are really right up in, in the chapters after that, right into to chapter 54. And you read Ezekiel 36, and how God's going to bring the exiles back and give them one heart to serve the Lord and the, and the glory of this. And Isaiah 40, the whole earth will see the glory of the Lord as the exiles return. But that's not what happens. Uh, about 44,000 exiles return from Babylon. Many stay there. And within a few years, they're being rebuked for their compromise, intermarriage with pagans, and so on and so forth. 
what happened to the prophecy? Well, part of it came to pass. The exiles did return. The temple was rebuilt. It was historic. But much of the rest of it, how the glory of the Lord would fill the earth as a result of it, the whole nation would serve God with one heart, that still hasn't happened. So we await the fulfillment of that passage, some of it with the Jewish people returning to the modern state of Israel, but then still the national turning has to happen, the glory of the Lord being revealed. Those things have not yet happened, but they will because they're promised in Scripture. Hmm. It's an interesting way to think about it. And I think it's good to like go back again to like this analogy where we're talking about like a movie or a book um, where you don't really understand what's going on and you get to the end and like it all makes sense. Um, and like with this and like Isaiah 7, I really, it helps me thinking about it that way. Um, so the next question for you then, Dr. Brown, is like if Jesus is the Messiah, um, you know, it, what like we, once again, this wasn't what like first century Jews were expecting. Like, um, why were most people, like, why were most first century Jews expecting, like, a military Messiah rather than, um, like, Jesus? We hinted at this a little bit, but I don't know if you have anything else you want to add. Uh, with well, that well, just this. In their past history, they were led by a king, right, beginning with Saul, then David, Solomon. So when they look back to their golden age, it was the days of David and Solomon, the, the Israelite empire. And there were promises to David that one of, one of his descendants would rule and reign and, and that he'd rule and reign over the whole earth. So where is he? Where is that anointed son of David? That became a great expectation. But there are expectations for other figures as well. There was the recognition that, that there would be an end-time prophet. And there were texts pointing to that, uh, early Jewish texts. You find the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. And because the priests played a major role in ancient Israel, and then with the Maccabean uprising, the Hasmonean dynasty, you had priest kings, basically. Hmm. You, you had the ruler of the nation was also the high priest. So you, you, had, you had that type of imagery. So there were expectations that there would be a priestly messiah along with a royal messiah. These were some of the concepts of the leaders of the people. Here, look, if, if America, if you're an American and, and you know, we had this early utopian age under, say, George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or whatever, mm-hmm. now we've fallen so far from that, and, and, and where's that one who's going to lead the nation again? And now we don't even have a president. And mm-hmm. that's, okay, what's happened? You know, we're, we're torn apart as a nation, and where is that one who's going to lead? You're going to be looking for a leader like that, a national leader. Mm-hmm. So it's very logical that, that that was the case. You didn't have the, the growth, say, of rabbinic Judaism at that point, the way we know it today, with such an emphasis on study and learning. You know, you had people like Ezra the scribe, but, but that was not the, 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 the fullness of the image of national leadership. So in traditional Jewish circles, as the centuries have gone on, the Messiah they're expecting is going to be like this super rabbi, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's his first and foremost uh, characteristic. So, you know, look, if, if Catholic Church was looking for another Messiah kind of figure, it'd be another type of pope, uh, you know, because that's the, that's the leadership image they're familiar with. And the idea of God doing it from the bottom up, coming into our world and dying to save is just mm-hmm. so different than what we'd expect. But then again, that's the difference between God being God and us figuring everything out. Mm. Yeah, I really, I really like that like analogy with like America because I think it's like it's so true if you think about it. Like, because um, a lot of Americans are looking for that one like leader or president or politician or like or whatever that's gonna like take America back to like what it was and what it's supposed to be. But in truth, like if there is something that like that's supposed to be like maybe the person is completely different than what we're expecting. Um, and I really like that analogy because it helps kind of tease that out with like, um, like you can build up like what you expect over time without like having like that full picture of what's supposed to be like going on. Right. And again, we, even in our own lives, figure out things wrongly so many times. Yeah. And God has a surprising way of, of dealing with us. So, but the key thing is it's, it's written in advance. The key thing is it's there in the Hebrew Bible. And, and now that we've encountered Jesus and we look back, wow, we can see it. Or we can take those prophecies say to a Jewish person, 
hey, who do you think this refers to? Or what do you think these verses mean? Or why this emphasis on suffering? And where does that come from? Who does that refer to? And as Jewish people, perhaps we need someone who has suffered and, and experienced hatred, rejection the way we have in, in, order, in order to, uh, to live out the, the, the fullness of God's plan. Hmm. It's super cool, and I like how you think about that. Um, so I have one more question for you, and then are you okay with a little bit of Q&A at the end, Dr. Brown? Is yep, sure. Awesome. Yeah, sure. We can do so, it briefly, sure. Awesome. So I have one more question, and we'll, have, we'll save like 10 minutes to do Q&A you got on it. our way out. Um, like in your mind, like how do we like effectively argue for like Jesus being the Messiah? So like, you talk about like being an apologist and whatnot. Like when, when you're trying to show people that like this Jesus person is fulfilling what the Old Testament um, is pointing towards, like where do you start and like how do you kind of go about that? So it all depends on the nature of the conversation. Yeah. The first thing is I, I know that these are effective tools, but that ultimately I'm relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to convict someone of sin. I'm relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to, to open their eyes to the need for a Savior. I'm relying on, on God to encounter them, uh, knowing that ultimately we must experience God. I, even if we're intellectually convinced of something, we must experience him. You know, C.S. Lewis, who famously went from being an atheist to a theist intellectually, mm -hmm. uh, then became a Christian by experience and faith. Mm. So the intellectual part can get you to the door, but now there must be that trust put in God or that encounter with God. So I'm, I'm always looking to the Lord to open hearts and minds above and beyond just the power of my words or the arguments from Scripture. But if, if I was giving a holistic presentation, I, I would start in Genesis. I would start to show how God's calling of Abram was always uh, about the nations, about the whole world, that he called Abram and his seed because he wanted to bless the whole world. I would then show how the calling goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah to David. And then I would begin to look at the life of David and begin to see how, yes, he was a king, but he also did priestly things. And, and then in Psalm 110, it says to David slash the Messiah, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the, the issue there is that the Messiah is a priestly king. I would point to Zechariah 6 to reinforce that. And then I would show that as, as a priest, the Messiah has to deal with sin. We know as a king, he'll rule and reign. So passages like Isaiah 2, which don't mention Messiah, but Isaiah 2 would speak of this error, Isaiah 11, or some other passages that speak of the worldwide reign of the Lord over the earth. So we agree that's messianic, but I would say, what about the priestly part of his work? What about the fact that he has to deal with sin? What about the fact that he has to suffer for sin? So then we look back at passages like Isaiah 42 and 49 and see how this servant of the Lord, this individual within Israel, is called to regather Israel uh, and set the captives free, but he himself will be rejected by his people and become a light to where the nations, there are the nations again. And in the 50th chapter, he's, he obeys the Lord uh, and he's beaten for it. And, and then the end of the 52nd chapter through the 53rd chapter, that this, this one who will be highly exalted will first suffer terribly and be disfigured and be rejected by his own people. That theme again, uh, and yet his death will not be for his sin, but for ours. So I, I, I would emphasize those things. I would kind of take them on that journey, mm. this logical messianic journey, to then be confronted with the reality of the cross and the resurrection in Psalm 110, you know, seated at the right hand of God, and, and trust that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes as they saw it and make them question, make them wonder, and, and then from there ask the Holy Spirit to, on the conviction, you know, apologetics, as is often said, is either pre-evangelism or post-evangelism, meaning that, that, yes, we're preaching the gospel through it, but often we're getting someone to the point of hearing the rest of the message. You know, if you do creation apologetics, well, someone's not going to get saved through that. They may realize, wow, there is a God, and there's more going on than I realized, and now they're open to hear the rest of the message. Or someone who is a believer and is now confused with questions and wonders are, are these things real? Now we're going to help that person stay strong in the faith. Mm. 
That's super helpful. I like um, you brought up C.S. Lewis a little bit there because um, I'm writing my thesis right now on Lewis. And he talks about like this this period between I think it's like 26 and 31 um, when he's from going from like just mere theism to like Christianity. He talks about how like when he's a theist, Lewis says um, he's like, it's like God is my sandbox. Like he's playing around like he can do what he wants. But he's like, mm. and I accept Christianity. And it's like, well, now there's I can't do that anymore. Like I kind of have to like face reality. I can't just kind of play around with like this mere theism that I was. Um, so I'd like to you borrow Lewis because he's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lewis is amazing. And, uh, yeah. And the the first year that I was in the, apolo the uh, apologetics context, Oh, yeah. and, and so I was having fun with it, you know, posting on yeah. social media root for me or just having fun with some of my <laughs> colleagues and yeah. you know, we were messing around with it. But I thought, hey, it's, it's a good way to introduce a lot of folks to different apologists that, that many of us don't know about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was having fun with it. And then the finale was it was me versus C.S. Lewis like, all right. <laughs> I think all my social media posts is not, is not quite going to do it. And, you know, funnily enough, I was, I was at my home congregation preaching on a Sunday morning mm -hmm. and uh, I was telling people, I said, yeah, it was, it was this one and that one and like all these famous names. And a lot of the people in the church were familiar with them, but mm -hmm. it wasn't like a big reaction. I said, and now the finale is me versus C.S. Lewis. And there was like this corporate laugh and growth. <laughs> everybody knew him. You know, and, and yeah. it's estimated what over a hundred million copies of his you know books or yeah. materials through video and movie are circulated, and mm -hmm. yeah, what what a legacy! But yes, you could be a theist theoretically and believe that there is a God who takes an interest in human beings without having a relationship with that God, or the full sense of accountability with that God, or even an understanding of sin, and that's where. There's a difference between being a theist and having a relationship with God through Jesus. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so what we'll do now is for about 10 minutes, we'll go to a little bit of q and I see a couple questions. Um, so we'll get through as many as we can. If there's super chats, we'll all do, do those first um, as they support the channel. Um, but Charles says, um, can you ask about the idea that Rome made up Jesus to the Jewish people more peacefully, um, to make the Jewish people more peaceful like Joseph Atwill suggests? I'm not familiar with this idea, but do you know what's going on here, Dr. Brown? There's more likelihood that Santa Claus is going to come through your chimney than any truth to that. Um, yeah, the Joseph Atwell book, you know, I've seen referenced in the last couple of years, but otherwise there's good reason that, that you never heard of, of this. Mm -hmm. uh, the impossibility of, of this just being foisted on people, the fact that, that we can clearly see that the Gospels were written, at least some of them with, within the first generation of those who would have been contemporaries, the idea that you could create this myth for for the ancient world, for the people that were there, the eyewitnesses, and that people are not going to be embracing it, and people have already been dying for it up to that point. The fact that you have outside attestation from other ancient Roman sources and then even Jewish sources that are hostile, that you have this outside attestation, there's just there's no reason even to address it. If someone raises it, you first need to dismiss it as utterly absurd. And, and that there is no top scholar in the world, uh, even agnostic, even atheist, who, who would accept this type of nonsense. But the utter illogicality and impossibility of foisting something like this on people in living memory of events that never happened, no, yeah. it's, it's, it's beyond ridiculous. Yeah, it's, yeah, I don't even know how you could get that. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, a. McMahon says, um, I'm curious about the prophetic figure in the Essene community who applied the portrait of the suffering servant um, of Isaiah 53 to himself. Um, do you know what's going on here, Dr. Brown? So there's there is debate about that, the idea of the suffering Messiah in the Essenes or the suffering servant in, uh, among the Essenes. There, there is debate about whether that's being quoted or, or used. There, there are some scholars who would argue in that direction that would be fine with me if that was the case. In other words, if there were major religious leaders in the ancient Jewish world that, that saw that figure in that way and applied it to themselves or the community applied it to themselves wrongly. Um, so we, we, we do know of, of a lot of things in Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls that would be parallels to the New Testament. You know, the sons of light versus the sons of darkness and them being the new covenant community and, and, and even a messianic community and things like that. Um, and, and the idea of the teacher of righteousness and the wicked high priest and how those conflicts work themselves out. And is there someone that dies in the midst of it? it it's, it's possible. 
but an explicit connection to Isaiah 53 is still highly debated. Hmm. That's super helpful. Um, there's a question about the New Testament from Wesley. I don't know if it, um, you have any expertise on this, Dr. Brown, because I know you're primarily trained in like the Old Testament, like Hebrew and whatnot. Um, but it says, do you think Mark had a different ending that's been lost? I don't know if you have any idea. Okay. In my view, what I'd felt for many, many, many years was clearly that Mark 16.8 does not lead into Mark 16.9. I, I don't think any hardly any credible New Testament scholars would dispute that. In other words, that Mark 16, 9 through 20, as we have in, in most of our Bibles, you know, either in, with brackets or with an asterisk, is not the original ending of Mark. That seems explicitly clear. There's a complete shift in subjects. There's a change in, in vocabulary. So in my view, in the providence of God, the original ending was lost. And that these words that we have in, in Mark 16, 9 through 20 do preserve the origi original words of Jesus that another apostolic author uh, added to the end of Mark's gospel. Hmm. Uh, when I say apostolic, I mean someone that would have written with divine unction or authority. So that even though Mark 16, 9 through 20, the so-called longer ending of Mark, would not be the original ending of Mark, it was one that was widely received by the early church, and therefore we can take it as carrying the words of Jesus and, and commentary around that as well. That's been my view as a non-Mark scholar. When I, when I did an extended interview with Craig Keener, folks can check it out on, on my Ask Dr. Brown YouTube channel. I just started a new series, Dr. Brown Talks with Scholars. So Craig Keener was the first one I spoke with. He's in the midst of what may be, when he's done, the most exhaustive commentary ever on the Gospel of Mark. And he believes that it ended with Mark 16, 8. That it hmm. ended abruptly with the woman confused and fearful, and that yeah. it's his way of saying, now you go share the message. Huh. Now you go share it. So yeah. that was something that I had not considered as a possibility uh, before the interview with Craig. Now I have to revisit the whole thing because he knows a million times more about Mark at this stage of his life than, than most of the rest of us. So yeah. I'm going to revisit that. But <laughs> up until now, that was my view. That the original ending was lost, but God in his providence has given us verses 9 through 20. I still believe that those verses can be taken seriously and that they parallel what's taught in the rest of the New Testament. Uh, but we cannot call them scripture in the same way we call the rest of the Bible scripture. It's one of those things where, like, you know, you're like, he'd love to know, like, what how did Mark actually end or like, you know, like Paul wrote like a third letter to the Corinthians or like who wrote Hebrew, like all these like cool questions. And it's like, we don't know. It would be kind of fun to figure that out. One right. Day. I mean, the question would be why mm -hmm. if Mark, you know, the immediate questions I'd have, if that's not the original ending, how did it get lost? Why in the providence mm -hmm. of God was that lost? At what yeah. point in history? And, and then why in the providence of God were other things added unless people perceived that something was missing? Mm -hmm. because this is the way it would end otherwise. And they went out and fled for the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Yeah. And that's how he ended it. So Craig <laughs> with a big smile says, yes, yes. Huh. And with the whole effect of, okay, we have to go now share the message. But any case, yeah. One of those big question marks. It is. Um, yeah. Um, Pseudonym said, um, you know, super chat. So thank you so much. Really appreciate the support. He says, um, in your opinion, um, even the Messiah for Jesus, are you a Jew or Christian Jew? Again, Trinitarianism, he, cr he clarified um, Christian Jew versus Jewish Christian. Um, so like, I guess, like, how do you identify yourself then, Dr. Brown? Um, right. So uh, in my heart of hearts, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. So that, that, that's I'm in him. And I'm a Jew and I'm a man, right? But yeah. you know, I, so I don't make separations there. Uh, I've used the term Messianic Jew as many others have in the broad sense. Messianic Jew can have a, a broad meaning and a, a, a narrow meaning. The broad meaning is any Jew who follows Jesus is a Messianic Jew. The narrow meaning is a member of a Messianic Jewish congregation. Uh, so the, there, there are two different usages for it. We found it convenient because if you say a Jewish Christian or a Christian Jew to a, a lot of Jews, that sounds like an oxymoron. It sounds like you're saying I'm, I'm a, a, a vegan beef eater. So it, it's, it sounds contradictory and confusing. 
uh, because Christian means the member of another religion and Jew is someone who practices Judaism. But then hang on, there are Jewish atheists. There are plenty of Jews who don't practice Judaism, but mm -hmm. they're ethnically Jewish. So it can become yeah. confusing. So uh, Messianic Jew, uh, I find to be very, very helpful. And if does, someone doesn't know what it means, great. Now I can explain it to them. It's, it's a Jew who believes Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, as against being Trinity, uh, against a Trinitarian doctrine, no, I'm certainly not. I, I affirm that God is one. There's one God and one God only, and, and that we know him as eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the same time, I believe the way that the church formulated the Trinity over the centuries got involved in a lot of Greek philosophy and things like that, which goes beyond what Scripture says. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily wrong, but it goes beyond what Scripture says. I'm not going to battle those points. I'm mm -hmm. not going to battle every word of the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed. I'm going to say, okay, what does Scripture say? Let's discuss that. And if someone said, okay, what does it mean in the creeds that Jesus is eternally begotten? Well, that's a phrase Scripture does not use explicitly. And to me, is is fraught with philosophical difficulty to be eternally begotten means what exactly? Mm -hmm. So I I... I prefer to just exegete scripture and come to conclusions based on that. Mm -hmm. uh, so as long as we emphasize there's one God, one God only, and that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, then I feel we're on safe ground. Yeah. Well, Dr. Brown, I appreciate your time today. It's been so much fun. Um, do you have any kind of like last thoughts or things you want to say before we wrap things up here? Yeah. I, I just encourage everyone that's into serious study and apologetics to remember why you do it, because sometimes we start with good intentions and then we just get so caught up in the intellectualism itself that, mm -hmm. that we lose sight of the fact that we did this because we wanted to help people that were struggling or we did this because we needed more solid answers. But the answers are not the end all. The answers are to help people be grounded in relationship with the Lord. Mm -hmm. So like everything else, relationship with the Lord is first and foremost. So, you know, maybe you're, you're, you're married your man and, and your wife said, boy, it would just be so nice if we could get out of these apartments and just get a nice piece of property for our kids to play on and build our own house. Husband says, yeah, that you're right. I, I, I agree. I want to do that. In order to do it, he now has to take on three jobs and he's working 90 hours a week and no one ever sees him for three years and he loses his relationship with his wife and kids. Well, what was the purpose of it all? Yeah. So we put relationship with God first and foremost and all these other things are adornments on that relationship, then we stay healthy. Well, Dr. Brown, thank you so much for your time. It's been so much fun. Always love talking with you. Um, so you can check out the Ask Dr. Brown YouTube channel on his website. It should be linked below. Um, and then thank you to everyone who joined, um, Wesley and Pseudonym or and McMahon and everyone else. Um, wish you the best. Um, so Dr. Brown, one last time, thank you so much. It's been so much fun to talk with you. As it's always. my joy, man. Appreciate your, your zeal for the truth. God bless you. And God bless everyone who joined. Have a good one and God bless. Bye-bye.